Each guest assumed his role as a member of the jury, conjuring up any great leader they liked. General Bradley decided he would be Alexander the Great, Margaret Truman recalled. Others cast themselves as Julius Caesar, Aristotle, though Churchill blocked Voltaire on the grounds that he was an atheist, and Oliver Cromwell on the grounds that he did not believe in the rule of law. When Acheson decided to stand in as George Washington, Churchill decided he would be better off if he waived the jury. He was prepared to trust in the presiding judge, Harry Truman, who proceeded to acquit him of all charges. Truman certainly understood as well as anyone that forced to choose between the unacceptable and the intolerable, leaders nonetheless have no choice but to lead. During that visit, Churchill made a confession to Truman. He too, he admitted, had been pretty discouraged when Truman suddenly succeeded Roosevelt. I misjudged you badly, said the Prime Minister, but since that time, you, more than any other man, have saved Western civilization. Now, setting aside the very poor theology for a moment, this is a very interesting story. Here we have some of the most significant historical figures of the last century actively envisioning their eternal fates as weighed before God in a courtroom at the end of their earthly lives. Men whose actions clearly impacted the lives and futures of billions of other humans felt compelled to give an account of those actions as the determinant of their eternal state. Perhaps most interestingly, they all assume that their verdict will be bound by the virtues and errors of their own actions. They look to no other for redemption, other than to a presumed understanding by a jury of their peers, and even God, that as leaders, they had no choice but to lead. They reasoned God and their peers would certainly understand that responsibility and acquit them of any wrongdoing. In their minds, it was to this understanding that their fates were bound and by which their eternal state would be determined. In resting on these assumptions and on their own actions, were these great men of history wise or foolish? Our text this morning tells the story of another courtroom, only this one is a real cosmic courtroom that will determine the eternal fate of every man, woman, and child, past, present, and future. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. In the Pew Bibles around you, this text can be found on page 794. Now, the book of Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament and written by the prophet and priest Zechariah in the 5th century BC. Zechariah, the grandson of Iddo, was a member of the priestly family who returned from captivity in Babylon with Zerubbabel in 538 BC under the reign of the Persian king Cyrus. Remember, the nation of Israel had previously had their own kings and nation, but had disobeyed God and so were kicked out of the Promised Land and deported in exile by the Babylonian and the Persian armies. Now, after 70 years in captivity, they were returning to resettle their old land. If you want to learn more about that, you can find more on that in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 12. Now, Zechariah practiced his ministry around the same time period as the prophet Haggai, and there were many contacts between the two prophets. Indeed, we know from Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1, that Zechariah was writing to the generation returning from the exile during the second year of the Persian king Darius in 520 BC. This was a time of relative stability locally in the local regime, although there were still hardships under the heavy burden of the Persian Empire. 
The rebuilding of the temple had begun again, and the writings of the prophet Haggai had served, stirred a new interest among the people in the prophecies. Zechariah worked side by side with Haggai to grow the faith of the people, all in an effort to rebuild the temple as they were commanded. Inward indifference toward the work, not outward opposition, was the real reason for the slow progress in God's work. And the prophets saw visions, told them, and preached the message of repentance to the people. It was into this environment that the prophecies of Zechariah were told. Now the book of Zechariah can be broken into two general parts. The first eight chapters contain eight oracles or visions by the prophet. The final seven chapters of the book deal with the prophecies about the coming Davidic king. Our passage this morning is the fourth vision in the first series of eight. Let's now read our passage of study together this morning. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. This morning, we're going to examine this heavenly courtroom, its actors and its deliberations more closely, and contemplate what insights it has for us today. We will study our passage under three headings. First, we will look at the courtroom and its actors. Second, we will look at the accusation, the rebuke, and the rescue. And finally, we will identify and ask the question for each of us that demands an answer. This will form the outline of the sermon, and I will repeat each point as I come to them to assist you in following along and for those taking notes. So let's start with our first point, the courtroom and its actors. Now, in order to more clearly understand the important work occurring in this heavenly courtroom, we need to get an accurate picture of the scene up front. In your bulletins, you should find an insert. You'll find that in this insert, it has a diagram that seeks to lay this out pictorially. And you may be helped to keep this diagram handy as we explore the roles, the words, and the actions of the participants in this vision, and potentially of even yourself in the scene. Now, prophecies in Scripture can sometimes be confusing. They can seem to have, and often do have, multiple layers of fulfillment, meaning, and even application. Together this morning, we will seek to sift through that potential clutter and glean a clearer picture of the imagery and forces at work in this very powerful and very applicable vision of Zechariah. I trust the diagram in the sermon will assist you in garnering a deeper understanding of the true charges resting against each of us and the vastness of Christ's righteousness that belongs to the believer. Now there are four major actors in this vision that demand investigation. The writer Zechariah identifies all of them right in the first verse, and we will examine each in the order the prophet introduces them to us. Read Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 again with me. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here we have the first view of the scene as shown to Zechariah by the angel. The angel is the he mentioned right there at the outset. 
The angel has been accompanying Zechariah through his vision since the beginning of the book of Zechariah. After several visions where Zechariah has been a participant in the vision itself, here we see Zechariah and his accompanying angel at the outset as mere witnesses of the action. It's almost as if Zechariah is like Ebenezer Scrooge. He's accompanied by his Christmas ghost guide to a spot in an ongoing story. He's able to fully observe and grasp the weight and the drama of the scene, but he's not able to initially participate in it. Only after he's moved in worship in verse 5 do we see Zechariah himself cry out in the vision for the angels to put a clean turban on Joshua's head when he finally recognized who Joshua really was. For now, Zechariah has been invited to witness this dramatic scene to personally see what a cosmic courtroom is really like, and we are invited to come along with him. As they watch the scene unfold before them, they quickly see that it is more than just a mere show. This is an active, heavenly courtroom presided over by the angel of the Lord, and it has a defendant and an accuser. So first we have the prophet Zechariah, who is initially a spectator and then an interjector. The second actor in our scene is Joshua, who is both the high priest and the accused. Look again at verse 1, which tells us that Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now this Joshua is not the principal character in the Old Testament book of Joshua, who led the nation of Israel into the promised land in what's known as the first settling of Israel. Rather, this is another Joshua, a man of the same name, who is very active in the second settling after the nation of Israel returns from the Babylonian captivity. In this vision, Joshua has several roles. First, we see Joshua as the high priest. Now, the high priest is the one man in all of Israel chosen to intercede between God and the people. He is from the tribe of Levi and only from the family of Aaron. There can only be one high priest, and he is designated to enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of the nation, but only once a year. This means that as high priest, Joshua is the intermediary, the priest of the people, to petition the angel of the Lord on their behalf. Hebrews 7, in describing Jesus, describes the high priest as one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This was a standard that the earthly high priest could not meet. In fact, remember the very reason Zechariah is prophesying to them is that they were falling back into the very sins that got them kicked out of the promised land in the first place. Joshua, as the representative of the entire priesthood, in its low condition, is standing before the judge for a purpose. Now, standing before him does not mean merely in his presence or sight, as if the angel of the Lord were looking out at a great vista and Joshua stood before him out there and all of that. No, Joshua was right there, nearby the altar, as if he was there to minister to the Lord or to be ministered to by the Lord. That is what a priest does. The purpose God has for him in this vision is also for him to stand as the accused. And this is the second role that Joshua serves in the vision. He has been brought there as a guilty supplicant, charged with sin and about to be tried before the holy angel of the Lord. Joshua is the high priest and the accused. We next meet the messianic angel of the Lord, who is both the judge and the advocate in this vision. According to verse 1, Joshua is seen standing before the angel of the Lord. Now this is not just a mere created angel as, as one created being standing before another, but rather this is the creator Christ, the angel of God's presence who is called Jehovah. In the Old Testament, the phrase angel of the Lord often refers to Jesus. Towering over the judgment scene, directing the proceedings, stands this angel of the Lord. 
And here we see the angel in his dual role. He is judge who renders the verdict based on the basis of reports from various sources. And he also acts as the advocate for his covenant people. His double office of judge and advocate is the more remarkable here in that the party that he is to judge, the accused Joshua, is the same one that he proceeds to defend. The fourth and final major actor we confront in the vision is Satan. And look again with me at the end of verse 1 to see where Zechariah says Satan is actually standing. We see here that he was standing at the right hand of Joshua for the purpose of accusing him. Joshua, the defendant, standing before the bench, has his accuser, the prosecutor, not his defense lawyer, standing at his right hand there before the judge. Satan, the accuser of believers, their avowed enemy, is right here observing and seeking their condemnation. His business here is sin and to cause trouble for Joshua. Satan is here to accuse Joshua in the most malicious and spiteful way and to do so in open court. He is not here as a spectator. No, he is on the move and in action. He is there as the Apostle Peter described as the prowling lion seeking to devour and his prey is the accused Joshua. He is also here for a purpose. He is here to claim his rights over the accused. Now, interestingly, Satan is the only character in this vision who does not have a dual role. He is here for a singular purpose, the destruction of Joshua and the overthrow of the angel of the Lord's sovereign authority. There is no statement of accusation read to the court containing someone's general indictment. No, Satan is here in person to boldly declare his right to the soul of Joshua and to petition the court to grant him that which he thinks he is entitled to own. Now the same verb used to describe the evil intentions of Satan here is used to describe Satan's intentions against Job in the prologue of Job. Satan deceitfully challenges the Lord in Job 1, 9 through 11 when he asks God himself this, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face. Satan's mission is real, his claims are serious, and his tactics are deceitful. He is the personal accuser of the sinner Joshua and is seeking his claim on Joshua's eternal state. With that layout of the scene and its major actors, let's move on to our second point and study the accusation, the rebuke, and the rescue. First, let's consider the accusation. Now, Satan's accusation against Joshua, his claim against Joshua, is that Joshua is defiled. He is unclean because of his sin and unworthy to be the intermediary, the priest of the people, to petition the angel of the Lord on their behalf. Indeed, he himself is so tainted by sin that he cannot even approach the throne of the holy God for himself, let alone on behalf of anyone else. Now, Satan has a very strong case against Joshua and against all sinners. In fact, Satan is actually speaking the truth in his accusation. Even the angel of the Lord acknowledges the truth of Satan's accusations here. Look again with me at verses 3 and 4. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. The phrase, clothed with filthy garments, is actually translated more precisely as clothed in garments, soiled in excrement which would automatically defile the wearer. 
clothed with filthy garments means he had fallen into sin. Joshua's sin plagued him with the soiled garments that he was wearing in the presence of the holy God, that he was bringing with him to the judgment seat for a ruling. He could not remove them. He could not take them to the laundromat and get them clean or just change himself into clean clothes. No, these were soaked in sin's defilement and they were and are impossible for Joshua to cleanse himself. In short, this sin was Joshua. This is actually who Joshua and all sinners really are. Isaiah chapter 64 verses 6 and 7 reads, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Even Joshua's attempts at righteousness were as filthy rags. As Romans 3.10 tells us, none is righteous, no, not one. Indeed, Satan here is actually claiming the right to Joshua's soul, actually based on the law of God itself. Leviticus 19.2 states the law very clearly when it declares, you, Joshua, shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And 1 Samuel 2.2 declares the truth on whether Joshua meets the standard when it states, there is none holy like the Lord. Even more damning for Joshua, who as the high priest, as we mentioned earlier, he was to be holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Joshua was none of these things, and he and Satan both knew it. Satan knew and knows the scriptures and was deceitfully using them as part of the foundation of his indictment against the high priest. Satan's assault on God's throne came disguised as a feigned concern for the sanctity of heaven's holy court. Interestingly, Satan himself is also recognizing and acknowledging the power and authority of God and using the mismatch between God's holy character and Joshua's sinful character as the justification for the judge to issue a ruling in his favor. Satan has made a solid case that based on the law, the judge should give him the win in the courtroom. God is holy, Joshua is not, and the sinner is therefore, by law, condemned to death in eternity with Satan. Case closed, right? Joshua does not speak. Satan has accurately and truthfully declared what was true. The evidence was the evidence. Joshua had no defense of his own. So what could he say? But someone does speak and someone also acts. Let's now look at the rebuke. Read Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2 again with me. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Let's examine this rebuke by asking and answering three questions about it. What did the advocate do? What did the advocate, what, why did the advocate rebuke Satan? And what did the advocate mean for Joshua? First, what did the advocate do? The advocate rebukes Satan. Here the angel of the Lord speaks and decisively rebukes Satan's charge. We see that the angel of the Lord did not enter the courtroom silently by the side door and take a quiet seat in the back to observe the affairs of his own courtroom. No, he affirmatively and indisputably interjects his word, his authority, and his ruling on the affairs of the proceeding. 
The Satan, the, the advocate also stays and silences the enemy. The Lord does not reason with Satan. He does not parlay or dance in a debate with him. God stops his mouth immediately with his sharp reprimand. He reproves Satan for his maliciousness and for his wickedness. The advocate also declares his sovereignty over Satan in victory, declaring not an opinion or a viewpoint, but a holy and unassailable ruling in defense of the accused. The Lord's, Lord pours out his wrathful word of truth on Satan so as to demonstrably declare his rule over him. Satan is checked in his plans by the one who has real authority and by one who has conquered and silenced him many times. The angel of the Lord's rebuke silenced the, the, the accusations and constituted a condemnation of the accuser himself. It was a repudiation of Satan's pretensions to the throne. Satan would pretend that history was frozen in the situation produced by his success as the tempter of the first Adam. In the Garden of Eden, he tempted the first Adam and Eve into sin, resulting in God expelling them from the garden and them having to live under the curse of sin. However, even then, God provided a way of hope in his promise that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent, thereby creating a way of reconciliation. Satan would have the court ignore this decree, declaring God's eternal purposes of grace for everyone that we repent and believe. He doesn't want anyone to remember the promise of a serpent-trampling Savior in Genesis 3.15. The advocate also protected his own. He moves from not only being Joshua's judge, but to also being Joshua's, Joshua's advocate. And he does so emphatically and sufficiently. He confounds Satan in his schemes. The accuser of the brethren is cast out. His indictments against Joshua are quashed. And he shows Satan's arguments against Joshua to be malicious, frivolous, and vexatious. The half-truth that Satan tries to perpetuate here, that Joshua standing before the court in filthy clothes is a defiling violator of the law, is shown to be for what it is for, what it is for Joshua, a half-truth. The advocate brings to light the decisive factor that Satan has concealed, God's eternal purpose of grace. Now the advocate also intervenes with his powerful word. By the Lord's word, the enemy was stayed. This is the same word that created the world in Genesis 1.1. The same word that cursed the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. The same word of Jesus that silenced Satan, the tempter, on the mountain in Matthew 4. The same word that rebuked the winds and the seas, bringing them to silence and rescuing the perishing disciples in Mark 4.39. And the same word of the same Lord who will throw down Satan in Revelation 12. He rebuked Satan as he did when he saw him behind Peter's counsel and when he repeatedly encountered him in his demonic agents, defeating them and delivering their victims throughout the New Testament. His word was followed by action. Now, if Joshua is guilty, as we have seen that he clearly is, why then did the advocate rebuke Satan? If God is holy and Joshua is not, why would he come to the defiled's defense? Perhaps he just defended and protected Joshua out of sympathy or pity. The Lord is a loving and compassionate God, right? And he wants to help the persecuted and the downtrodden. And Joshua, as we've seen, has seen is clearly in need. Is this why? No. Joshua was his chosen Jerusalem, his own people. The Lord rebuked the charges of Satan because he had chosen Joshua as his own. This protection of Joshua by the advocate 
is founded on Joshua's faith and salvation in Christ. The advocate's work is the answer for all the works, good or bad, done by Joshua. It is not due to anything Joshua has done. It is all the advocate's work. The power of God is engaged in making the grace of Christ effective in Joshua's defense. For Joshua was a brand plucked from the fire. A brand was a dry stick cast into the fire and half burned. As such, the brand is in a state of separation from God and is unprofitable, unfruitful, and in danger of being fully consumed in the fires of divine wrath. Joshua, for his sin, is as deserving as all others and is under the same sentence of death as a result. Without a redeemer, Joshua is certainly to be fully burned in the fire. But by the grace of God, he is plucked out of the state, given salvation by God, receiving both a defense from Satan's accusations and a rescue from God's holy justice. Joshua, as a brand taken out of the fire, was delivered from sin's captivity. The rebuke meant that he was not standing for judgment alone, having to face the enemy on his own in his own sin and real guilt. It meant that he had an advocate, and that advocate was the holy judge. It was not just that he knew some people and had a good in with the judge and was being treated with leniency as a result. No, he had the actual judge, the only one who could have any real in with the judge as his own advocate. It meant he had hope. He did not stand merely condemned, but had hope in a true rescue from his predicament. Joshua had been claimed. And that claim, that siding with Joshua, that defending against the fiery darts of the wicked, meant that he could seek rest under the shade of protection provided by the divine rebuke of the accuser on his behalf. His advocate was not merely a character witness, not merely a good friend standing alongside him during this time of need. Joshua's advocate was not just there to stick up for him against his accusers. He was actually there to stand in for Joshua against his accusers, to take his place in court. If God is for Joshua, then who can be against him? This is what it means for God to be for him and against his enemies. There was no graver physical or personal threat to Joshua's life than his sin and Satan's claim on the eternal state of his soul. The prowling lion is cunning, deceptive, and insidious, and Joshua's love of his sin, apart from the grace of Christ, would see him condemned without any saving rebuke of Satan. But thankfully for Joshua, the holy God was also on the move. Like Lewis's lion Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, God was on the move to bring hope, deliverance, and complete salvation. Those who belong to Christ have him ready to appear vigorously for them when Satan appears most vehement against them. Romans 8.33 gives Joshua confidence in the work of his advocate when it declares, Who shall bring any charge against God's own? It is God who justifies. Joshua can stand firm and sure knowing that those who are called to God are also justified and glorified. And this brings us to the rescue. Now that we have seen how Satan's accusation has been stayed through the rebuke of the Lord, we can now understand the work of the full rescue. For you see, just the rebuke of Satan and the plucking from the fire alone would not have been enough to rescue Joshua. Indeed, the question before the court, the point of contention, revolves around the Lord's now claim to the sinful but chosen people represented by Joshua, 
that Joshua is still in his defiled garb at the outset of the vision. Will this representative sinner be condemned and abandoned to the dominion of Satan? Or will he be justified as a holy minister in the service of God? Two things remain true. Joshua is guilty in his sin, and God's law required holiness. Look again at Zechariah chapter 3, verses 3 through, 3 through 5 again with me. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. The angel of the Lord not only speaks, but acts in reclothing Joshua. But how is Joshua actually rescued? Well, this, my friends, is the core of the gospel. Joshua's forebears, Adam and Eve, gave up perfect communion with God. They rebelled and chose to follow the word of a serpent instead of the word of their holy creator. They turned away from the holy God to pursue their own glory, their own desires, and thereby sin entered the world. The perfect fellowship was broken. God judged them and expelled them from the garden. From this very point on, every human being who ever lived had rebelled against God and is deserving God's judgment for their sin. But that was not the end. God promised to send someone who would crush Satan in sin. The person was God's only son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life without sin and therefore never deserved God's judgment. However, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he willingly took Joshua's sin and his judgment on himself. Sin was righteously judged on the cross. Christ's shed blood paid the price of Joshua's sin. Because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, death was not the victor, and sin was not the victor over him or Joshua. Christ rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. Not only had Christ paid in full the penalty of Joshua's sin, but he also imputed his righteousness on Joshua and all those who repent and believe so that those with faith in him would be spared eternal separation from God's grace. His shed blood had now covered over Joshua's sin and clothed him in his righteousness. Joshua had been rescued. Christ exchanged his own righteousness, his own white robes for Joshua's filthy rags, thereby giving Joshua the righteousness he needed to be found holy and acceptable to the judge. This is what is shown in verses 3 through 5. First, the angel commands that the filthy garments be removed. His unrighteousness is taken away. Remember, the garments of priests were to be new and fair, according to the Jewish canon. And if they became filthy, they did not try to whiten them or wash them. They actually left them for threads, actually to be used for candle wicks, which I thought that was pretty interesting. And they put on completely new clothing, and hence is the angel's order here. The order is not to go wash the garments of Joshua, but to remove them from him. The angel of the Lord then says to Joshua in verse 4, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. He declares what only God can declare, for only Christ has the power to forgive sin and apply grace to Joshua. The angel declares that Joshua's filthy garments symbolized his sin. Christ took the iniquities on himself, removing it as far from him as the east is from the west, causing the guilt of it to pass from Joshua's conscience 
and giving him assurance of the free and full pardon of it. As Isaiah 53, 5, speaking of Christ, clearly tells us, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The removal of iniquity symbolizes justification in Christ for Joshua. But Joshua also needed and received new garments, but not just clean ones. He was clothed in pure vestments. Now priests changed garments frequently, but this was not a mere change of clothes. Pure new clothes is the regalia of the high priest in which Joshua is robed. It is the opposite of dirty clothing. Putting on pure vestments meant Joshua putting on the righteousness of God. The removal of the unclean clothing symbolized the blotting out of sins, the rebuttal of Satan's accusations, forgiveness and the carrying of Joshua's sins by Christ. The reclothing of Joshua signifies the judicial declaration of Joshua's new righteousness. Justification through Christ, giving to Joshua his own righteousness and the vanquishing of Satan. Joshua's reclothing was his vindication as the one who is now in the right, in the sight of the judge. Now the prophet Zechariah, in observing the festivities, interjects, seeking to humbly request that Joshua be a complete priest. As one saint intercedes for another, rejoicing in the restoration of another, he asks for Joshua to be given a turban. A turban was a garment for the high priest and was a covering for the head that was made of linen. And this completed Joshua's reclothing from head to toe. Note there in verse 5, we see that the angel of the Lord was standing by. He was still standing over the deliberations making sure all was being done according to his order, showing his sovereignty and his pleasure over the courtroom's affairs. The shed blood of Jesus was the detergent that had now provided the pure vestments. 1 John 1.7 declares that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood had removed the guilty stains and transformed Joshua into the glorified brand plucked from the fire now holy and acceptable to God. Sin was conquered. Satan was rebuked. Joshua, his chosen, was rescued and reclothed. The judge was glorified in his holiness. This brings us to our third and final point. And this point is the question for each of us that demands an answer. Please look again at that diagram on your bulletin insert. Now we have so far examined each item in this picture but one. And you may have even thought that this one was a typo. And that's the question mark in the middle of it. Now some of you may be thinking, what does this really have to do with me? Well friend, this is not just a story from the vision of a prophet 2,500 years ago. This is where everyone will assuredly stand one day. All of us will be judged according to our righteousness. And all of us will be guilty, but not all of us will be rescued. Friend, the question mark is you and I. How will you fare in this holy tribunal? Will you stand speechless under Satan's accusations? Perhaps you will try to argue based on your good merits, like Churchill or Truman, and attempt to seek an understanding with the holy judge to get out of condemnation. Perhaps you hope to reason your way out of conviction. 
Friends, the book of Romans tells us over and over that those ways are futile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that this is not, this is not and will not be a court where justice is not served. Being a brand plucked from the fire does not mean that the sinner or sin gets away without punishment. No, the wages for all sin is death. The robes of righteousness for the believer were bought and secured for the believer with the highest price ever paid. The death of the only one who could ever stand in this courtroom and never need an advocate and still be found not guilty. The death of Jesus on the cross for the believer already took that judgment and condemnation for all the sins of the believer. To believe in God as your Savior through this gracious work of Jesus and through faith in Christ alone is the only path of hope in this holy courtroom. For you see, God's holy justice must be and will be done for the believer and the non-believer. All men, women, and children are condemned and dead in their sins no matter what. The question is, who will be plucked from judgment by the advocate Jesus and who will not? Who will the advocate speak up for against Satan? Even more importantly, for whom will the advocate stand in and take their judgment and give him their righteousness, his righteousness? To be saved and be the brand plucked from the fire, we need God's justice to be fulfilled and we need his righteous clothes put on us. This is what happened at the cross for those that repent and believe. Sin was judged and replaced by his righteousness. If his judgment is not satisfied, then his just wrath is still against us. And if we were just washed up and not preserved by being clothed in his own righteousness, then we are still condemned, as no one is righteous, not one. Now, children and teenagers, perhaps you're thinking, well, Mr. Pelletier is talking about prophecies and visions and courtrooms, and I've never seen any of these things, and so what does this really have to do with me? Well, let me try to explain this another way that might help. Children, have you ever been in trouble with your parents or in school and in trouble for something that you actually did that you know you weren't supposed to? This is where Joshua found himself. When you got caught and were being punished, did you ever wish that someone was standing there being punished instead of you? I have, right? Or maybe you were hoping that there was someone there to defend you, even though you knew that you had sinned and deserved to be punished. Well, this is what Jesus does. Jesus defends those who believe in him and stands in your shoes and actually takes your punishment for you. And even better, he gives you his own righteousness. This is what Jesus can do for all those that repent and believe in him. Children, talk with your parents this afternoon or this week about how you, about how Jesus can be your advocate and your savior. For us to be plucked from the fire and for Jesus to be our savior and advocate, you need to be two things. First, you need to be a sinner. And the Bible clearly declares that we all are. So good, good news, we have all met the first condition. This is what places us in the courtroom in the very first place. Second, we need not to just be a sinner, but a sinner who repents of that sin, turns from it in faith, and trusts in Jesus to save you, to judge you, your sin, and clothe you in his righteousness. We must turn from the sin that condemns us 
and toward the Savior that redeems and rescues us. There is no in-between. We might wish there was, but friends, this is one of the most black and white truths of all time. Just as a single drop of water cannot be both inside a glass and outside a glass at the same time, so can neither a brand of wood be both in and out of a fire. If it is even a tiny bit in the fire, it is still getting burned. And if the brand is completely out of the fire, no accusation of Satan or sin can touch it. And it is defended by the advocate and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. It is either one or the other. There is no combination. When you stand before that throne at the end of your days, will you stand there in filthy rags, condemned in your sins? Will you be standing with Joshua, or by yourself, unprotected? Will God be stepping in to rebuke your accuser? Or will you be standing there already dead eternally in your sins? Friend, if this is you, and even if you are unsure of your answer to this question, I plead with you to repent and believe. Turn from your sins and turn in obedience toward Christ, where he will clothe you in his righteousness as his own. If you want to talk more about that, or more about this, or have other questions, I encourage you to see me at the door after the service, or talk with a friend or family member that you came with. There is nothing more important that you can do or think through. Make the time to know your own real answer to that. For the believer, you too must answer this question and understand where you stand in this, in this courtroom. As a believer, you stand with Joshua. You are a sinner saved by grace. No more is needed and no less would be sufficient. You have an advocate, a spokesman, and the only successful stand-in. You no longer stand in your filthy rags. So don't wallow in your sins, for those filthy rags have already been judged on the cross and they've been burned. As a believer, you have already been given your pure vestments, and they can never be soiled. Not by you, not by others, and not by Satan. Once you have been re-clothed in Christ's righteousness, you can never be undressed or disrobed. For you are righteous in Christ, not on your own works, or in your church, or in your nationality, or in your circumstances. Remember that your pure vestments are not originally yours. They were imputed or given to you by Christ, not as a loan, and not to try on for size, but as your own, as you are his chosen. You get to stand before the angel of the Lord in Christ's own priestly garb, his own clothing, and hear his judgment declared in his favor, as being in Christ is in our favor. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we, you and I, get to hear not judgment from the angel of the Lord, but the angel's victorious declaration in the new Jerusalem, told to us by the Apostle John in Revelation 22, that blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Our robes have been washed in the blood of Jesus and eternal life with our Savior in heaven is the reward. You are a brand plucked from the fire. Declare it. Hold to it. Live it. Know it and remind each other of it. For the believer, there is hope, glorious hope, and joy beyond imagination. Be thankful for all that he has done for us in Christ. 
humbly proclaim his praise, joyfully serve as he has shown by his example, and trumpet his mercies and his works from the mountaintops, for he is the advocate who truly saves. We are all a brand in the fire of some kind. The question is whether we will be a brand plucked from the fire to glory by the Savior, or whether we will be a brand left in the fire of sin's condemnation. There are only two paths forward, one to eternal judgment, separated from the grace, but not the wrath of God, and one to eternal glory in heaven with God as part of his own chosen family. This is the serious question for each of us that demands a personal answer. Now in the end, we will thankfully not be judged by a jury of our peers and their fickle assumptions, but by the Holy God. Well, at first, that may seem for some to be worse than a jury of other humans, and for some it truthfully will be. We have seen that only in the gift of Christ and the righteous fulfillment of the Holy God's judgment do we find acquittal. There is no rebuke of Satan and no reclothing in righteousness for those who do not repent and believe. This is only for the believer in Christ. For the unrepentant sinner, there is only the righteous judgment that condemns you in your sins. Friend, where do you stand and what is your defense? The only defense is Christ's righteousness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled and amazed at your saving and gracious work in providing a savior for those that repent and believe. You, who needed nothing, sent your own son to be born so that he could die, giving both judgment and righteousness to the repentant sinner for the purpose of giving hope to the lost and more glory to yourself. You provided a defense for repentant sinners while preserving your holy character and justice. By shining immense light on the gloriousness of your grace, Father, mold us by your love and discipline us that we may more richly and deeply understand your marvelous works. May the gracious gift of being clothed in your righteousness dominate our hearts, and may your gospel be boldly proclaimed for your glory. In your risen Son's name we pray. Amen.